All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. And today we're going to address a question that I hear all the time. It has to do with why don't politicians follow the Constitution, right? And specifically, why don't politicians on the left follow the Constitution? Now, first thing I'll say right off the bat is both parties have been guilty of not actually properly interpreting and applying the Constitution, right? There's plenty of blame to go around on that, but you do see a lot more uh, manipulation of the wording of the Constitution in order to justify the greater centralization of power in the hands of the federal government, and those arguments are usually coming from the left, right? And today, we're going to discuss three clauses within the Constitution that are often misinterpreted in order to give the federal government more power than it actually possesses within the text of the Constitution. Okay, and this is important to understand because a lot of people think that many on the left are just throwing out the Constitution, and that is probably certainly true for some, uh, but for many more, what it is is they found ways to interpret clauses within the Constitution in order to justify what it is they actually want to do. And they, they reference these clauses a lot, uh, you see it in the, you know, they either reference these clauses or they just completely ignore questions about it. So you saw this in an interview with Nancy Pelosi when a reporter asked her the question, you know, where in the Constitution does it give you the authority to pass Obamacare and essentially require people to buy health insurance? And she re responded by just saying, are you serious? And then ignored the question. All right, you saw Senator Mark Warner from Virginia uh, provide other examples that didn't really answer the question. But what we're going to go in today is what, what are the three most common clauses misrepresented to justify the federal government and typically those in the left on the federal government essentially ramming through whatever they want and then claiming that they have the constitutional authority to do it. Okay, so in order to do that, we got to lay a little bit of groundwork here. Right? we got to first establish what is the Constitution. I know everybody is familiar with the Constitution, but the question is, is what does it really do? Right? And there's essentially three things that it does. Okay? You, you could argue more, but three basic things. One is it sets up a, a mechanism for how the federal government is organized. Right? So you have the legislative branch, you have the executive branch, you have the judicial branch. Right? And along with setting up that organization, it talks a little bit about why, why the, the, the states were doing this in the first place. Okay, in addition to that, it also lays out different responsibilities and authorities that the federal government has. So it talks about what the role is of the legislative branch. The legislative branch is supposed to write all of the laws. The executive branch, the executive branch is responsible for executing the laws. 
and then the judicial branch. The judicial branch is there in order to interpret laws when there's some sort of confusion about how the law is to be applied and how it should be applied in accordance with the text of the Constitution, right? Those are, that's, you know, the second thing the Constitution does. It lays out authority, authorities and responsibilities. The other thing the Constitution does is it lays out a process with respect to how it can be amended. And when we think of the, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, commonly referred to as the Bill of Rights, all right? There, there was actually a couple of other amendments that were included in that, but we generally associate the first 10 amendments with the Bill of Rights, okay? And what's important to understand about that is the Bill of Rights is not the federal government conveying rights to you as an individual or conveying rights to or, or authorities to the state. That's not what it is, right? It's restrictions on the federal government. So it's a recognition that you have certain rights which pre-exist government, and the, the first 10 amendments, which a lot of the states demanded be placed in the Constitution or demanded be considered before they would agree to ratify the Constitution, are all about restricting federal authority. There was a big concern that, okay, we're going to create this centralized authority, and then all of a sudden it's going to run roughshod over individual liberty. It's going to run roughshod over the duties and responsibilities of the states. And so there was a, a, a big push, both within the Bill of Rights and within the nature, within the body of the Constitution, talking about enumerated powers. You find a lot of that in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, where it outlines the responsibilities of Congress, right? So the founders, the citizens were very, very concerned about the federal government growing to a size or assuming roles and authorities that were not granted to it. That's one of the reasons why you have things like the Ninth and Tenth Amendments to the Constitution, which specifically suggest within the Ninth Amendment that, you know, just because something isn't mentioned in the Constitution doesn't mean it's an individual right. And then in the Tenth Amendment, you have a lot more emphasis on saying that just because um, the federal government has these authorities, right, those authorities are essentially enumerated. Right? And, and those authorities which are not granted to the federal government are reserved to the states or the people. Okay, so it's, it's very important to understand the context of why the Constitution was organized the way it was, why the Bill of Rights were put into place. Okay, again, Bill of Rights do not grant to you certain rights. It's a recognition that the federal government has no authority to infringe on those rights. And then, they, again, they go so far as to say that just because a right isn't enumerated within the Bill of Rights, that doesn't mean that the federal government can do whatever it wants. It is supposed to only apply the authorities and responsibilities that are specifically outlined in the body of the Constitution, right? So those are the three things, right? The organization of the federal government, the responsibilities of the federal government, restrictions on the federal government. All right, so that all seems pretty straightforward. And if you look at Article 1, Section 8, and if you use that as a guide to determine what the federal government is responsible for, it's actually a very, very narrow set of rules, things like dealing with uh, foreign entities. So whether it's trade policy or whether it's uh, defense policy, it talks about post roads. Uh, it talks about the ability to levy taxes, but they're only supposed to levy taxes in conjunction with those things which are necessary and proper for carrying out the responsibilities of the federal government. Okay, so that, that's all important to understand. So how can we take a document that is so clear and the duties and responsibilities, the organization, and the restrictions on federal power, and then all of a sudden find ourselves in a world where the federal government thinks it can do just about anything to include compelling you by law to like buy health insurance, right? How do we get to that point? Or that the federal government now has a right to regulate your garden, 
right? And you might think that's absurd. I'm going to tell you exactly where people argue that they have justification to do this. Okay, so let's start off with the first clause that is commonly used by the left in order to justify a rapid expansion of government power, right? It's referred to as the general welfare clause. The general welfare clause appears in a couple of uh, positions. So at first, it's in the preamble. So here's, the, here's what they mean when they say the general welfare clause. The preamble, which you're probably familiar with, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Okay, the first thing to understand is that when this is mentioned within the preamble, okay, a, a preamble is just kind of like a, a statement of purposes or principles, right? It, it doesn't have law in and of itself. It's not expressing specific authorities. It's saying that the organization and the authorities we're about to describe to you, we're establishing those for these purposes, right? So securing domestic tranquility, providing for the common defense, promoting the general welfare, right? So that, that's all it is, right? There's no authority established in, in the Constitution based off of the preamble. It's just basically a statement of principles. Now, it's important because it does provide you with some insight into what the intention was, right? But then we go into Article 1, Section 8, and this is what lays out the duties and responsibilities of Congress and says, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and the general welfare of the United States, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Okay. This is what's commonly used, and, and you saw you see this argument. Um, Justice John Roberts you know, justified his position on Obamacare based off of Congress's ability to lay taxes. Uh, you see a lot of other people say, you know, when the federal government is doing something that, you know, for instance, maybe it's education spending um, or, or, you know, maybe it's uh, spending on something else that's not specifically laid out in Article 1, Section 8. The argument that they always go back to is, well, no, we're promoting the general welfare. Okay. Here's what's important to understand and why this is wrong, because that seems plausible. Seems plausible that, okay, if we're doing something that is beneficial to the, the people of the United States, then that falls under promoting the general welfare and therefore Congress can do it. All right, let's read a little bit about what this was meant to convey. Okay, so again, on a large scale, the establishment of the federal government was supposed to carry out its assigned duties with respect to those issues that impacted the republic as a whole and only within the powers that had been delegated to it. Right, so the general welfare clause was not a blank check for Congress to do whatever it wanted. And we know this because people like James Madison wrote in 1800, the general welfare clause cannot enlarge the enumerated powers vetted in Congress. He said again in 1830, it exceeds the possibility of belief that those who support limited government should have silently permitted the words or phrases in a sense rendering fruitless the, res the restrictions and definitions elaborated by them. What he's essentially saying there is that if um, the general welfare clause allows Congress to do anything, well, then why did we even put in restrictions, right? And then Jefferson even said that it would, that to have this sort of open interpretation of the general welfare clause would reduce the constitution to a single phrase. And he's correct because the big question ends up being, well, who gets to decide what falls within the general welfare of the people of the United States. And, and if Congress can essentially do anything as long as they say it promotes the general welfare, well then you can throw out pretty much the rest of the Constitution or the restrictions on its powers or the enumeration of its authorities and powers. 
right? So this, I, this, this liberal interpretation of the general welfare, welfare clause is absurd when you look at the context of the entire Constitution. But then when you go beyond that and you actually look at what the founders were saying, whether it was in the Federalist Papers, the concerns that were listed in the Anti-Federalist Papers, what various state ratifying conventions were saying, they were all saying the same thing. They saw this clause and were concerned and they were assured by the proponents of the Constitution to include Alexander Hamilton, who as soon as he got power decided to, you know, he, he wanted to reinvent what he was saying. But when he was making an argument for the Constitution, there was, there was, pretty much uniform agreement that the general welfare clause does not mean Congress can do whatever it wants. It means that when it is fulfilling its assigned responsibilities, it has to do so with the general welfare in mind, right? And, and part of that was in and of itself a restriction to say that Congress is not supposed to essentially play favorites, right? The federal government is supposed to be considering the interest of the republic as a whole Right? Not just individual groups that it might want to cozy up to. So that interpretation of the general welfare clause is absurd. And the reason why liberals should be concerned about it is because, yeah, they might like the idea when they're ramming through something that, that they approve of. What happens when somebody else is in power and now they're doing something the left doesn't like and they're saying, well, you know, general welfare. What if a bunch of Republicans decided, you know what's, you know what's in the best interest of the general welfare of the republic? If everyone owned a firearm. And so therefore, we're going to allocate tax dollars to buy every single citizen a firearm that falls within those ages typically associated with the militia. We're going to use tax dollars to fund a firearm for every individual plus training. There would be a lot of people on the left who'd be like, that's ridiculous. You don't have any authority to do that within Congress. And you know what? They'd be right. But if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a completely open definition of the general welfare clause, then essentially you, you remove all of the boundaries that the Constitution was meant to put on the federal government in the first place. All right, so that's the first one, the general welfare clause. Let's look at another one. <clears throat> and this is one of my favorites because the examples of how this has been misinterpreted and manipulated to allow the federal government to do things it was never intended to do is egregious, right? And that is the interstate commerce clause. So where do we find this within the Constitution? Again, Article 1, Section 8, under the, the duties and responsibilities of Congress, it says Congress has the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with Indian tribes. Okay, so um, what was the purpose of this? Well, the, the purpose, when you read what the founders were talking about, was is they essentially wanted a free trade zone within the United States. They didn't want individual states, and states you know, ratified it with this understanding, they didn't want states basically getting involved in trade wars with other states where they would, you know, you know, bar different, you know, um, people from exchanging goods and services from state to state. They wanted to create a free trade zone. And if you look at the way that regulation was used or regulate was used at that time, it had to do with making regular, right? So making it basically a, a common set of rules which would govern that trade. Not to mention the fact that if you look at the way commerce was interpreted at the, at, when the Constitution was written, commerce also had to do with trade and exchange. But what you're seeing nowadays is not only is, is regulation being defined far more liberally, so is commerce. Commerce is now being defined as any sort of gainful activity. All right, and this has had some real problems. And a lot of this started off with the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration under the New Deal. 
He kept passing all of these laws where the federal government was assuming authority for itself to engage in price fixing. I mean, they, they literally were taking dry cleaners to court in order to sue them and punish them because they were selling dry cleaning for too little a price, right? The federal government was essentially trying to fix prices at the federal level based off of interstate commerce law. And the Supreme Court was striking this down. You had another case, uh, the, they called it the, the chicken trial, where the federal government had imposed a, a rule that when you go in to buy a chicken, a lot of chickens, you couldn't select the individual chicken. They just had to give you what was there. Well, there was different companies that were not complying with this. Why? Because customers want to pick what they buy. And again, they took them to court. Um, now, probably the, the worst case of this happened when the Supreme Court kept striking down New Deal laws because they were clearly unconstitutional. And so FDR threatened to pack the court, right? Does that sound familiar? We're, we're seeing that right now. In fact, there's a bill before Congress right now to increase the number of justices from 9 to 13. Well, FDR had a similar plan. He was gonna pack the court. He was tired of the Supreme Court standing in the way of him expanding federal authority beyond the boundaries of the Constitution, so he threatened to pack the court. And it was such an unpopular idea that even Democrats said, yeah, this is, this is probably not good. We're gonna, we're gonna erode people's confidence in the neutrality of the court. And so they stopped the court packing scheme, but you had some retirements on the Supreme Court and the new appointees pretty much got the message and they started to you know, rubber stamp some of these New Deal practices. And one of the worst ones was Wickard versus Filburn in 1942. Now, the federal government argued, they, they made this argument with a straight face and the Supreme Court upheld it. What happened in Wickard versus Filburn is you had someone that was growing wheat on their own property for their own consumption, right? So they planted wheat, they harvested the wheat, and then they used the wheat to feed their family and their livestock. The federal government came in and said that was a violation of New Deal laws based off of the Interstate Commerce Clause. Now again, interstate commerce means a product or a service being manufactured or, or built in one place and being sold in another place, right? That's the exchange that's taking place. So it's crossing state lines. That's where the federal government has some authority, not absolute, but some authority to, again, go in there and, and regulate that process. But this wasn't crossing state lines. Nothing was crossing state lines. A dude was literally growing wheat on his own property for his own consumption. So how did the federal government and the Supreme Court justify this. This is the reasoning that they used. They said, well, this individual who's growing wheat on his own property for his own consumption, if he hadn't done that, he might have gone to the store to buy wheat. And if he had gone to the store to buy wheat, he might have bought wheat that came from a different state. But since he didn't do that, that had an effect on interstate commerce and therefore the federal government could regulate your garden. I mean, if that's not tortured logic, I don't know what is. But it ushered in this, this new federal expansion of powers on interstate, uh, based on the Interstate Commerce Clause for decades. And it essentially went unchecked. It wasn't until, uh, the, I think it was the 90s, U.S. versus Lopez. The federal government had passed laws on whether or not you could have a gun uh, on school grounds. Now, look. Over 40 states had already passed laws saying you couldn't have a gun on school grounds, right? So it's not as if there was this, this big issue. Um, but the federal government decided they were going to pass their own law. And Lopez took him to court and said, well, you don't have any jurisdiction over this. And yes, if you look at Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, they don't have jurisdiction to make that kind of law. 
In fact, there's prohibitions under the Second Amendment for the federal government making these kinds of laws. And the federal government used the Interstate Commerce Clause to try to justify their position. And what did they say? Get this. They said that if a gun was on school grounds, that could make a student nervous. If a student was nervous, they couldn't focus on their studies. If they couldn't focus on their studies, they wouldn't be able to get a good job. If they couldn't get a good job, that would have a negative impact on interstate commerce. Therefore, the federal government has the authority to pass this legislation. I mean, that was so absurd that the Supreme Court finally struck it down. But what was interesting is that there was only one justice that actually brought up the problems with this liberal interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause, and that was Justice Clarence Thomas. And, and he brought up similar points. He's like, look, if, if you're, if you're going to say that anything that potentially affects interstate commerce can therefore be regulated by the government, federal government, then the federal government can regulate literally everything because in some cosmic sense, anything can affect interstate commerce. Right? But, but it's interesting because it was people like Justice Ginsburg that actually defended the government's position on this the federal authority to intervene on something that it had no specific right to do, no specific authority to do, and was clearly an absurd definition of the Interstate Commerce Clause. Because again, if that is the definition that you're going to use, then there is literally no form of commerce that the federal government can't touch or regulate. And that was never the intention, and it was very, very clear when the Interstate Commerce Clause was put into the Constitution under Article 1, Section 8. And, and here's what I find fascinating. If you want to look at the states that have been pushing back against this, look to the states that are passing marijuana laws. Right? When they're legalizing marijuana, they're essentially nullifying federal law within the, the boundaries of their state. And we're going to get into nullification on, on probably our next episode because I want to go into that a little bit more specifically. But it's this whole idea that if, if you can interpret the Interstate Commerce Clause the way that many on the left would like us to, then you can essentially throw out any restrictions on federal authority when it comes to regulating the economy. There's nothing they can't do as long as they can make some sort of connection to a particular action or inaction affecting interstate commerce, right? But that is commonly used as justification for the federal government intervening in, in economic decisions that they have no business doing. Um, okay, let's look at the, the last clause here, right? The necessary and proper clause. This is the one where when your kids go to school and they learn about how government works, and sometimes it gets described as the elastic clause, right? And the idea is that the reason why we put in the necessary and proper clause was so that the federal government had some wiggle room on what they could do, all right? Here's what it says in Article 1, Section 8. Again, Article 1, Section 8. To make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Now, some people stop at necessary and proper. Right? They say, okay, well, yeah, it's because the government needs to promote the general welfare or because the government needs to or can regulate interstate commerce. Therefore, they can do whatever is necessary and proper in order to regulate interstate commerce or promote the general welfare. That's not what the text says. Let's look at it very carefully. To make laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution and the government of the United States. So what it's saying is, is that you can do necessary and proper things when it comes to executing 
the expressed powers that we've given to the federal government. Not anything you want, not anything you've decided promotes the general welfare, not anything you've decided affects interstate commerce. Those things within the foregoing powers. All right, so a way to think about this is, is like this. Let's say you hire a contractor to build a deck on your property. Okay, well, it's, it's kind of implied that if you want them to build the deck, then they're going to have to go out and get materials for that. They're going to have to buy wood. They're going to have to buy screws. They're going to have to buy nails. They're going to have to buy, you know, sealer or whatever it is to build the deck. Now, if that same contractor came in and said, oh, by the way, we also had to buy all of this other stuff that doesn't have anything to, directly to do with building your deck, but we think it's going to be beneficial for your property. Well, no, that falls way outside the boundaries of the contract. And let's keep in mind, that is what the Constitution is, right? It's a contract or a compact between the people in the states and the federal government that they were establishing, right? It's not a blank check for the federal government to do anything at once any more than it would be a blank check for your contractor to decide that they were going to bring a whole new addition onto your house when that is not the authority that you have given to them for a very specific purpose, but if you're going to say necessary and proper, and if the only people that get to decide what necessary and proper are is Congress, if, it's not, if it doesn't fall within any boundaries of the restrictions or authorities that you've given Congress, well, then they can make anything necessary and proper. And, and what's interesting is that this isn't Nick Freitas saying that. Let's look at what was actually said by Madison, right? Madison stated that the necessary and proper clause, he specifically said, gives no supplementary power. Pennsylvania Chief Justice Thomas McKean stated, it gives to Congress no further powers than those enumerated. Hamilton in Federalist 33 said the exact same thing. Jefferson pointed out in 1791, if necessary meant convenient, well, then government will always find their oppressions convenient. Right? And, and this is the problem. And, and it's twofold. It's not just with our politicians. I want to emphasize this. It's not just with our politicians. It's the fact that because we don't properly train and we don't properly educate people on what the purpose of the Constitution was, and because there's this almost sycophantic um, obsession with the idea that, well, the federal, we elect the federal government to get things done. And if that's promoting the general welfare or regulating commerce, then of course they need to be able to do whatever's necessary and proper in order to do that. The Constitution was not written the way it was to merely provide for a federal entity that could get everything done that people may have wanted done. It was set up to fulfill certain and specific and enumerated responsibilities. The reason why they didn't want an all-powerful government that would interpret these three clauses the way that they're now commonly being interpreted is because they recognized the danger in giving a centralized authority the ability to intervene in some of the most personal aspects of all of our lives, right? We are not just a republic. We are a republic of republics. And one of the things that Madison and Jefferson and Mason and so many others poured over was this idea that there was a problem that they found without history, that free societies and republics, when they had grown to a certain size, they became unmanageable. 
They became unmanageable because now you had diverse interests that were being represented. And what they wanted to try to do is create an environment where you didn't allow some strong man or some centralized authority to come in and dictate terms to everybody, especially when you had a diverse population with different concerns and different priorities. And so setting up a federalist system where the federal government had certain enumerated authorities, where state governments had a lot more authorities, and where we still protected individual liberty regardless of the authorities that we granted to the state or federal government, that was what they wanted because they recognized and, and they foresaw that as the United States grew, it would be a lot more difficult for 500 people in Washington, D.C. to effectively manage the concerns of 300 plus million people. And so they wanted more, th those decisions, which were, were you know, far more impactful on your individual day-to-day -day life, they either wanted that reserved to the individual to make their own decisions within a free market and a free society. And if a law had to be made, they wanted to be made on the state level. The federal government was only supposed to work on those things which affected the republic as a whole and fell within the enumerated powers of the Constitution. And, and what I don't understand about this is that in this left-wing rush to completely water down or misinterpret these clauses, they're not just creating a bad situation for conservatives. They're creating a horrible situation for themselves because they're not always going to hold federal power. And one day, federal power might be held and executed by people that have far different intentions than the current makeup of Congress. And so these restrictions and the emphasis on restrictions in the Constitution on federal power are critical to understanding the nature, responsibilities, and restrictions of federal power. But if, but if all of our emphasis on how we educate our children is, well, the federal, the federal government needs the power and authority to, to do good things, to promote the general welfare, we're not telling the story of what has happened throughout time and space, throughout history, when federalized governments or centralized powers have accumulated the authority to do whatever they want. Because ultimately, this is not, is not just a question of getting things done. It's a question of how do you define the general welfare? How do you define when a particular policy is good or bad? Is it simply majority rules? Because contrary to what a lot of the people on the left will tell you, we're not a pure democracy. We were never intended to be. The emphasis on the whole foundation of the American experiment is not just democratic elections. It's an emphasis on individual liberty and restraining government power so that individual liberty could thrive. So that you could pursue happiness in accordance with your definition of it, not an elected member of Congress or a member of the executive branch or a judge that now believes that their job is to legislate from the bench as opposed to interpreting the law. And so one of the best things that you can do is you're talking to other people and they're talking about what the federal government should do or should not do, is bring up these cases of, well, wait a second, why would you want the federal government to do that? Because the common response we get back is, well, if you don't want the federal government to do it, then you must not want it to be done. No, I don't want the federal government to regulate all commerce, not because... I don't think that there's certain rules by which commerce should act, but because that is not the best authority for setting up all of the rules that govern commerce. 
I don't want the federal government to have the absolute power to determine what is in the general welfare because to give them that power is to, by its very nature, cede my individual choice and liberty over to a body of elected representatives. That is not what the United States is about. So we need to get back to focusing on the purposes of the Constitution, not just to tell the federal government what it can do, but to emphasize what it cannot do and to explain to people why we don't want the federal government doing something. Frederick Bastiat summed this up great. He said, the socialists conclude that if we don't want the government to do something, they must mean we don't want it done at all. Which is to say that if we don't want the government to completely control education, then we must not want education. No, we want education, but we recognize the inherent danger of allowing politicians to decide what education looks like. We want agriculture, but we understand the inherent dangers in letting the government decide what agriculture looks like or what commerce looks like. And so if we can get back to explaining that side of the Constitution, that why those restrictions on federal power are important, not because we don't want good things done, but because we recognize that different localities, different states, different individuals are going to have different ideas about that. And the more we can expand individual liberty, the more we can allow people to be free to make their own decisions, learn from the consequences of their actions, whether they be good or bad, and then adopt their behavior appropriately, that's a free society. Not the federal government completely expanding the definitions of these three clauses within the Constitution, while at the same time ignoring the very restrictions that were put in place in order to preserve a free society. All right, I hope you found this helpful. There's, there's, some, there's some people I want to also mention on this. If you're looking for more... Um, you know, literature on this or more insight on this, I'd really recommend Senator Mike Lee. He, is, he has done a, a lot of good research on the nature of the Constitution. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story. When um, I was running for office at one point, I went up to go meet with Senator Mike Lee to earn his endorsement. And, you know, a lot of times when you do these, uh, these meetings, it's kind of a lot of chit-chat, get-to-know-you, maybe a couple of softball questions um, and whatnot. Not with Senator Lee. Senator Lee came in, shook my hand, shook my wife's hand. Nice to meet you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. And then immediately said, what do you think of the Interstate Commerce Clause? And I said, oh my gosh, Senator Lee, it's one of the most misinterpreted clauses along with the General Welfare Clause. And I went in to descri describing the cases in 1942 and the problems with it. And, went, and, and Senator Lee and I became, became friends after that conversation. He's a great guy. He's done a lot of really valuable research on this. So I, I would look up Senator Mike Lee, some of the books that he's written on this. I would also look up some of the interviews he's done. He actually did a very inter uh, interesting interview with Jordan Peterson. Uh, that I recently watched, where he outlined some of his philosophy and how some of these clauses have been misinterpreted. Another great um, person to read, he's a, he's a historian, is Tom Woods. Now, Tom Woods is controversial in some circles. Look, the bottom line is, read what he has to say. He lays out a very good argument. He's a very, very gifted historian. He also has a very good understanding of economics at the same time. Um, we're actually, I, I used one of his books, uh, Nullification, in preparation for this show. We're actually going to be talking about the concept of nullification in a future episode because a lot of people have questions on it. And a lot of people have been brought up to believe that nullification was a tool of slavery or a tool of Jim Crow. And we're going to actually dispel that myth. And we're going to talk about all the different cases, about the, the philosophical concept behind nullification and the idea that if the federal government is the only entity that can decide when the federal government 
has violated the Constitution, well, then we, we completely upset the balance between individual states and the, and the federal government. So we're going to talk about that on a future episode. But again, Tom Woods, Mike Lee, a couple of great people uh, to check out on this. Also, the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, right? The Federalist Papers get all the, get all the love. I'd also encourage you to read the Anti-Federalist Papers. These were people that, that, that were patriots that were very, very skeptical of the Constitution because they were afraid of the centralization of government power. Um, and what you see in the Federalist Papers, in many respects, is a response to the concerns that the Anti-Federalists have. Right? So, I encourage you to read those. Mike Lee, Tom Woods, Federalist Papers, Anti-Federalist Papers. Once again, thank you very much for joining us today. I hope you found this helpful because the, these clauses are used a lot. Again, it's not just that the left is ignoring the Constitution. Sometimes they use the Constitution or a misinterpretation of these three clauses in order to justify what they're doing, in order to give it the intellectual veneer that, no, 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 we're following the Constitution. No, they're not. And a good understanding of it will equip you to be able to discuss with people you know, the problems with their interpretation and that the problems of their interpretation don't just apply to a conservatives. The problems of their interpretation hurt liberals as well, and they need to understand the nature of that. Once again, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time on Making the Argument. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.